is Lee Habib, and this is our special Father's Day edition of Our American Stories. And we love to talk about music on this show and the arts. And when you think about fathers and sons, well, in the theater, nobody did it better than Arthur Miller. Nobody. And no matter what anybody tells you about plays like Death of a Salesman or All My Sons, these are father-son stories, period. Some of the rawest, some of the best. And they're still playing today. Miller dies half a century ago, and his art still lives on because, well, the father-son relationship is a tough one. And in the music business, nobody did it better. Nobody still does it better than Bruce Springsteen. And again, no matter what you think of his singing style or anything else, it's the stories that drew fans, really drew fans to his work. And the central figure in so many of Bruce's songs is his father. The other is God. Bruce is having a running argument and disagreement and a running struggle, getting closer to and then falling further away from God throughout his entire catalog. This is true of Bono's work, too, of you, too. And so here on Father's Day, we wanted to celebrate with Bruce Springsteen's very best composition on the father-son relationship, on his relationship with his own dad. The song is Independence Day. It was on the album The River, 1980. And Bruce always starts this song in concert with a story, a story about the song itself and how it came to be, and a little conversation about fathers and sons. Let's take a listen. Independence Day was the first song I wrote about fathers and sons. It's the kind of song you write when you're young and you're first startled by your parents' humanity. You're shocked to realize that they had their own dreams and their own desires and their own hopes that may or may not have panned out exactly as they'd wished. And when you're young, all you can see are the adult compromises that they had to make. But you're still too young to see the blessings that come with those compromises. And so all you see is this world closing in, closing in, closing in. Closing in. And all you can feel is, I know I felt like I've got to get away, I've got to get away, I've got to get away. So, I had a simple setting for this song. I set it around a kitchen table. There's two people having a late night conversation. love one another but they're struggling struggling to understand one another this is independence papa go to bed now it's getting late Nothing we can say is gonna change anything now 
I'll be leaving in the morning from St. Mary's Gate. We wouldn't change this thing, even if we could somehow. Cause the darkness of this house has got the best of us. There's a darkness in this town that's got us too. But they can't touch me now, and you can't touch me now. They ain't gonna do to me what I watch them do to you. So say goodbye, it's Independence Day. It's Independence Day all down the line. Won't you just say goodbye, it's Independence Day. Independence Day this time I don't know just what it always was with us But we chose the words And yeah, we drew the lines There was just no way that this house Could hold the two of us I guess that we were just Too much of the same kind Just say goodbye, it's Independence Day Old boys must run away, come Independence Day Won't you just say goodbye, it's Independence Day All men must make their way, come Independence Day And there you have it, Bruce Springsteen's story about his father and his relationship. Fathers and sons, Father's Day, and of course daughters too, celebrating both here on Our American Stories. This 
is Our American Stories, and we're dedicating the whole show today to fathers. Not every father, by the way, is actually a child's biological parent. And we're going to be digging into many different ways people are fathers to children. There are stepfathers, uncles, mentors, coaches, you name it. Lots of men step into the breach for deceased or absent or inadequate biological fathers. One man who's taken this to an extraordinary level is one of my personal heroes, John Croyle. John was a world-class football player for Coach Bear Bryant at the University of Alabama. But he had a different calling in life than playing in the NFL. Right out of college, John started the Big Oak Ranch, a Christian home for children needing a chance. Over the decades, John, his bride, their children, and the house parents at Big Oak Ranch have taken in and raised over 2,000 children abandoned by their biological parents. And by the way, John has some extraordinary children. His son, Brody, played and quarterbacked at the University of Alabama and then went to the NFL and played with the Kansas City Chiefs. He's now back at the ranch. And John's beautiful daughter, who is a world-class athlete herself, a basketball player, is at the ranch too, and she's running the school there and running it the way you'd imagine a coral would run things. Well, here's John sharing a story from a few years back, a tragic story, but one that really shows men how to be real fathers. Five years ago, phone call. Hello? Second brother was calling me. I said, what's up? He said, where are you headed? I said, work. He said, I know where two kids are. I said, okay. Where are they? First question of the Bible is, where are you? I figured if that's God's first question, it might not be a bad one for me to ask. I said, where are they? He said, I ran to me. I went to the steel truck stop in Steele, Alabama. I walked in, and their corner is a round table with this woman, her sister, and two small children. I walked up. She said, are you him? I said, I guess. I'm the only him here. And she said, you that guy that I see on TV that gives kids chances. I said, yes, ma'am. That's what we do. Well, here's my boy. He's 11. He just got back from a three-week tour of Florida with some friends of mine. Here's my little girl. She's 10. She, just, she didn't go to Florida. She visited a friend of mine every other weekend in Anniston. And I looked at the kids, and I've done this a long time. And I can spot an orphan, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. And I can also spot a child that's been abused. And I looked at them, and they have what we call shark eyes. Dead, empty, lifeless eyes. I said, how you doing? And then it hit me. She sold them on the internet to pedophiles. And I said, I want y'all to listen to me. I have four promises. I love you. I will never lie to you. I'll stick with you till you're grown. There's boundaries. Don't cross them. The girl went to the girl's ranch. The boy went to the boy's ranch. A month later, a little girl's in a van riding down the uh, Interstate 59 with her house dad. We built a 5,400 square foot home. We put a godly couple in the home. They'd give them eight kids and they'd raise them up. Just old school, raise them up stuff. And it ain't rocket science. And she tugged on her house dad's sleeve. He said, what, baby? She said, can I ask you a question? He said, sure, what? You really love me? Can I sidebar a moment? Every child in your care asks that question every morning. Dad, will you love me if I get pregnant? Dad, will I still be your boy if I get a DUI? I still going to be your boy. You still going to love me. 
They ask it every day. If I screw up, are you still going to come get me? <laughs> that's the time you play like God. You go get them no matter what. Because that's what real men do. When they were sitting there and the dad said, why, baby? She said, I need to tell you something. She started wringing her hands. She said, you remember... Do you remember those two men I told you about? He said, yeah. They really hurt me. Once they were hurting my brother, and he was screaming, and he was bleeding, and I was kicking them, and I was hitting them, trying to make them stop, and they wouldn't stop. Then they went and got the camera, and they hurt us all over again. And then they tied us to, taped us to a chair, and they, they made us watch them do ugly things to our mama. When I found out I took off of school, I picked her up and I hugged her for about three minutes. I backed away from her and I said, do you remember those four promises I made to you? She said, about loving me? I said, yeah. She said, yes, sir, I remember those. I said, you get one extra promise. And if you want to put my life down into one sentence, this is it. I took her face in my hands. I said, as long as I breathe, no one's ever going to hurt you like that again. First words out of our mouth, thank you. Nope. Appreciate it. Nope. First words out of our mouth. Would you go tell my brother? Even then, she had it. Whatever that it is. Can't define it, but she had it. I found the boy. I put him in my truck. I looked at him. I said, I know. He said, you do? He thought I knew him and three boys were smoking out behind the barn. <laughs> Sometimes you just be real quiet. You'll learn a whole lot more than asking 10 million questions. And then when I said, no, that's not it. God, I can't believe I told you. But anyway... I said, no, your sister told me. When I said that, his hands instantly started shaking. His lips started quivering. His eyes filled with tears. He just hung his head. I said, do you want to talk about it? And I'll never forget his words. I can't. I said, look at me, boy. As long as I breathe, no one's ever going to hurt you again. Now, fast forward to a little over two years ago. We're in South Alabama. We're deer hunting. We're in a tree stand. He's 13 years old, never been on a deer hunt. I'm teaching him, trying to. We're sitting there. He drops the binoculars in the tree stand. He drops the gun. Now, those of you that don't hunt, deer can hear real good. <laughs> then he, where are the deer? I said, they're about eight miles down that road. You know, right over there, you could see them running. The whole herd was running out the valley. So anyway... I said, look, just take the binoculars and see if you can see something. So he took binoculars. He's going, <gasps> now I'm going to be honest with you. I said to myself, there's no way in Hades he sees a deer. There ain't no way. He's going, there's a cow. Can we shoot it? <laughs> I said, we're not hunting cow, boy. So then I said, okay, just keep looking. 30 minutes later, the deafest, dumbest doe walks out. She didn't have any eardrums. She came out and somebody had spilled some corn out there or I mean, some stuff. <laughs> but anyway, she was munching on the corn. <laughs> then he gets ready, to, gets ready to shoot. And I said, somebody's going to get killed. <laughs> and then we loaded the gun. <laughs> you know, he missed. Of course he missed. 
No one had ever told him. He missed the mark because no one showed him. He fell on the floor of the tree stand. He stared at the hardwood, um, at the plywood. His face was just like his eyes were wide open and the plywood splinters right here and he's just staring. And then once again, it's one of those moments, a wall hit me. When he missed his whole life, he had been told he was sorry, worthless, no count, piece of human garbage. And when he missed, he proved everybody right. What a child hears repeatedly, they eventually believe. I picked him up. I said, look at me. He said, yes, sir. I said, no, look at me. Yes, sir. I said, the neat thing about God is he always lets you reload. And that deer ain't moved yet. <laughs> when the bullet went over that deer's head, she threw her head up and she was so stupid, she turned sideways to make sure we had a better shot. So the second time, he relaxed, he comes in here, he drops that dough. I wish you'd seen him drag that dough into camp. He swole up. The dough weighed more than he did. I said, you want help? You, you just carry the gun in the bucket. I got the deer. He comes dragging it in. The reason he was so proud is that morning when I said, this day, you're the man. This day, you're feeding your family. This day, you're taking care of your little sister. This day, you are a man. And what a story, folks. What a voice. What an American voice. And now you know why John Coyle is my hero. And if you met him, well, he'd be yours. And you kind of just did meet him. A father to 2,000-plus children, folks. A phone rings. John Coyle answers it. He steps in. No questions asked. No questions unanswered. Love, always, at the end of of that phone line. Love, a home, a family. And that's John Croyle's story, the Big Oak Ranch's story, in the beautiful town of Gadsden, Alabama. All of these Father's Day stories, a special celebration of Father's Day here on Our American Stories. is our American stories and we're celebrating Father's Day and we're celebrating some well some good stories mostly a couple of bad ones because my goodness there are so many people listening who simply didn't have fathers who were present so many daughters so many sons and hopefully for all of you who did have dads like that either because they were negligent because they walked away or because they died I mean so many people I know I know several who lost fathers in tragic car accidents in other, in other sad and tragic ways. And we're celebrating fathers. And we recently talked with Wayne Bisbee, who runs the world's largest fishing tournament. 
Bisbee's Black and Blue Marlin Tournament, and it's in Cabo, a place where my bride and I honeymooned after our, our wedding uh, almost 12 years ago. It wasn't always that way that this was a big event. It was started with his dad and six boats and was more of an excuse to hang out to fish and drink in Cabo than anything else, these guys from Southern California. Here's Wayne on his dad and his character and what the success of that tournament enabled him to do. That goes way back to starting with my dad's days, you know, and it, it, it's something that, you know, the community was small back then. He was part of it or we were part of it. You know, we were just kids, but, uh, you know, we all grew up down there as a second home to us and everything from the, you know, up until the 90s. Gosh, the there wasn't a radio in that town that the policemen, you know, used that my dad didn't supply to the first ambulance in town my dad bought because there was no ambulance in town. Um, and it just goes on, you know. I mean, I give my dad a ton of credit for his heart's always been you know, to the other people first and him last kind of thing, all the way through family and us kids, too. I mean, we never wanted for something, you know, and whether we could afford it or not, he had us on the front burner versus himself. And, uh, you know, it's just the kind of guy he is. I know it sounds kind of cliche-ish or whatever, but it's true. And, uh, you know, if there was a hurricane down there, he was the first guy running parts and running, you know, uh, uh, materials, whatever you you know they needed down there, you yep. know, to to help them recover from the hurricanes and things. And next is just well a classic, and it comes from a column that we came across. And we love to do this on our American stories, folks. We love and we find a great piece of writing to just call up that author and have him read what he wrote. Why bother interviewing? Why bother mucking it up? Let's just hear his words unfettered. And this one had to do with fishing, just like the last one, and about a father and a son who were reconnected because of a son's generosity and ultimately a father's generosity. And now it's time for rediscovering my old man and the sea. In the Wall Street Journal, not long ago, the really great writer Keith Blanchard, well, he had a fishing story that he wrote for the journal that was really, really a great father-son story. We gave him a buzz, asked him to record it for us, and here it is right now, Keith's story about a trip he took to Mexico to catch fish with Pop. Among the most beautiful words in the English language are certainly home and family. Bacon is a contender, too, in some circles. But to sports fishermen, no words are more beautiful than fish on an adrenaline-fueled exclamation that they shout across the back of a boat when something has at last found its way to their hooks. I've been deep-sea fishing since I was too small to remember. My dad, my grandfather, and I would steam out at least a couple of times each summer from Barnegat on the Jersey Shore in my grandfather's 40-foot fishing boat, Sea Doll. My grandfather was always on the hunt for a trophy sailfish, back when the sea was still thick with such things. And he and my father had fished all the way out on the continental shelf for years, staying overnight and sleeping in shifts so they wouldn't be run down by freighters. But when I came along, they stayed responsibly closer to shore, hunting striped bass and settling, sometimes, for the much-maligned Atlantic bluefish. These were all sea monsters to the preteen version of me, with their slack jaws and unblinking eyes, flipping over and over on the deck and skidding and slip-sliding into the hold. I'll never forget the raw anticipation I felt when our boat slipped free from the dock in the early morning when it was still dark, foam churning behind us to the thrum of the motor as we pushed North America away behind us. But kids grow up, and life moves on. 
My grandfather passed away, his boat was sold, and over time I kind of lost touch with both my old man and the sea. And so, decades later, right around the time I turned 40, I decided to stop thinking about it and to organize a father-son fishing trip. It took my dad about three seconds to say yes. And what would we fish for? Well, the ocean is filled with wonders. But deep-water fishermen all share one bucket list catch, the marlin, king of the sea. And so my dad and I, with my good friend Roddy, an experienced marlin hunter, found ourselves motoring out past the chalky crags of Baja California's Pacific coasts, 3,000 miles and a world away from New Jersey's Barnegat Bay, on the first day of a three-day fishing trip. Out of the ghostly marina at dawn and into the cold, dewy air of the Pacific. With the ceremonial first beer a little later, we drank a toast to my grandfather, and Roddy gave us the brief. A cross between a shark, a unicorn, and a freight train, marlins often weigh more than 200 pounds, though some monsters are much heavier, and can swim as fast as a car, looping majestically out of the water when trying to throw a hook. And they're Neptune's own serial killers, eating anything they can smack and stun with that bone-hard bill. They're also smart and worthy opponents that work hard to stay out of your boat, thrashing and slicing at your line with their bills, even fouling your lines by swimming under the hull. Hauling one can take an hour, sometimes much more, of focused work. Your job is to keep that rod bent, reeling in the line when the fish will let you. A few hours in, we lucked out. Fish on! My dad slid into the fighting chair, set the pole, and started winding away. At several points, I jokingly offered to take a shift, but he just growled and continued his determined struggle, ultimately reeling in a nice one, 160 pounds and almost 7 feet long from the tip of the bill to the fork in its tail. We took our proof of triumph photos and released the fish to help keep the population healthy. Later, we celebrated at a bar, where I became acquainted with the awkward feeling of drinking with one's father while busty waitresses wearing Pancho Villa-style shot glass bandoliers trot around pushing drinks. I was ready to hook my own trophy, but the second day was more like a nature cruise than a fishing expedition. We saw dolphins and sea turtles and two whales that surfaced together right in front of our boat. Our only fish-on moment came when Roddy hooked a hump-headed bottle-green mahi-mahi. Back to shore we went to eat our humble, delicious catch of the day. Our third and last day broke cold and overcast. Good fishing weather. The hours ticked by with all of us staring hopefully at the end of the rods, but we just couldn't will that telltale bounce into being. By the time we turned for home, I was at peace with it. A bad day's fishing is still better than a good day at work, right? Then, suddenly, just as we were about to pull up the lines, fish on! I scrambled into the chair and focused hard while my proud dad snapped photos like a maniac. And then the sharks arrived circling the boat in anticipation of what we were about to reel in. Sharks love marlin, especially when humans have helpfully hooked them. The boat's crew bravely, or was it insanely, leaned over the stern and smacked one away with a bat and pulled another out of the way with the hook of a long-handled gaff. My muscles were in agony and my reeling hand blistered up. I was functioning on pure adrenaline, feeling every inch a soft and pudgy city kid. At one point, my prize leapt out of the water and flashed me those beautiful stripes. Would this marlin be that coveted middle line for my tombstone? Born, caught marlin, died, or the dreaded one that got away. Today, my marlin, a fiberglass replica of it actually, hangs on my office wall. My dad's replica hangs in his house. Mine was slightly smaller than his, as he will remind you again and again if you let him. Every time that giant memento inspires questions and I get to tell my story, our story, I picture my dad doing the same thing, and it brings a smile. A bad day of fishing beats a good day at work, but a good day of fishing beats almost anything at all. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, celebrating Father's Day. More after these messages. 
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, our special Father's Day celebration. And this segment, this story, is mine and my dad's. I wrote a piece for Newsweek called The Father Privilege, a son's tribute to his dad on Father's Day. And it started like this. My father, I never knew him, Eminem once lamented. Never seen a picture of him. And you could almost feel the pain coming through the pages and coming off the pages of Rolling Stone magazine when I read that. His father's absence drove much of the Detroit rapper's work and life. Asked once if he'd ever want to meet his dad. Here's what he said. I don't know. I don't know. Some people ask me that. I don't think I do. I just, I can't understand how... If my kids would move to the edge of the earth, I'd find them. No doubt in my mind. No money, no nothing. If I had nothing, I'd find my kids. So there's no excuse. A grown man still angry at that dad who abandoned him. It'll never leave Eminem. Anyone who's ever had a violent or abusive father would tell Eminem he was lucky. And so when we think about Father's Day, we gotta think always about those boys without fathers, for those bads with really, really bad dads. But for the rest of us who have fathers who did their best to raise us and love us, we're the lucky ones. Indeed, it may be the greatest privilege no one in America is talking about, the father privilege. I'm one of those privileged ones. Growing up, my dad was very present. He provided for us, he put a roof over our heads, put food on the table, and he expected things of us. He expected us to do our best, to be good students, good people. My parents got married right after Dad graduated college, but they never took time to be a married couple. Always, there were kids. By the time he was 30, he had four of us to take care of. Was he ready for it all? Couples didn't ask that question in the 1950s. They were probably better off. No matter how long we delay such things, we're never ready. I remember as a kid looking at pictures of him before he was the man he became. He looked like a grown-up, even in his high school yearbook pictures, as did most of his peers. Why did he sacrifice so much for us? I learned as I got older that calling what he and my mom did a sacrifice would have just irritated them. They were doing what people did. No one back then thought postponing adolescence into their 30s was an option. They just started things, started their lives, started families and careers. The picture of his wedding day was my favorite. The young bride and groom grinning as they shared a piece of cake celebrating on a rooftop at a neighborhood building. No wedding planners, no exotic honeymoons. It was a drive to Niagara Falls and back to life. After he left the Air Force, he served as an officer training future officers. He started teaching history, coaching hoops, and all at a public school in a local town in northern New Jersey. He became a department head, then an assistant superintendent, and one day, he was running the place. He was the boss. There was always a sense of inevitability about that outcome with my dad. Some people are born to run things. I often asked myself, what were his dreams? The child of immigrant parents, he didn't think much about such things. His generation 
was too practical. They didn't sit around talking about how to change the world. They were too busy trying to change their world. My dad's life was a slice of the American dream. A rental house every summer at the Jersey Shore. Family night at the drive-in movies. A pool in the yard. Air conditioning. And a basketball court over the garage. But my dad didn't just provide materially for us, he was always there for us, too. He was an old-school dad. There wasn't a lot of hugging or praise. On the rare occasion he said something nice, it really meant something. Not bad. That's what he'd say after a good effort. If it was a particularly good effort, he would say not bad twice. He wasn't a man who looked back on life with regret. He had little use for taking his own temperature. He had a temper. I was afraid of him, but not physically. I was afraid to let him down, afraid to disappoint him. When he yelled, it made me tremble. His temper had that kind of power. I remember the fights he had with my mom. I never understood what the fights were about and what kid does. They probably didn't know either. Sometimes I thought one of them would just walk out and call it quits. But always, the next day came. Always. They carried on. As time passed, Dad's temper faded. As my dad got more comfortable in his own skin, he was better able to navigate his own emotions. And he just got calmer. Meet him today, and you'd call him laid back. As I got older, I came to appreciate the small things, the daily habits and rituals my dad and mom shared. Those rituals and rhythms of life gave me great, great, great feelings of stability. A great sense that relationships can last, that love can last. The coffee he started for my mom every morning, the daily run to the supermarket, the evening coffee out by the pool listening to WOR on the transistor radio, the early dinners at a local bar for pizza and muscle marinara, the card games which mom always seemed to win. The habits of love were there for me to observe, and later on, to imitate. The love I witnessed didn't look like anything I ever saw in the movies. It looked like something so much better. Something within reach. The constancy, the consistency, the mutual understanding. None of it was terribly exciting, but it was good for me. It was good for my parents, too. Quote, the most important thing a father can do for their children is to love their mother, Father Theodore Hesburgh, former president of Notre Dame University, once said. My dad was not a religious guy, but he would agree with Hesburgh on that point. And he would agree with theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said this in a letter to his niece before her wedding day, quote, It's not your love that sustains your marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. That lesson may be the greatest my dad taught me. Marriage sustains love. I sometimes think of the writers who've written about fathers. Most, I suspect, had really bad ones. Or only remembered the bad things their dads did. Quote, I haven't been completely fair to my father in my songs, treating him as an archetype of the neglecting, domineering parent. Bruce Springsteen recently conceded in his memoir, Born to Run. 
Anyone who knows Bruce's music knows the ominous role his dad played in his catalog. It was the birth of Springsteen's own son that prompted a truce between these two men. Springsteen tells the story of his dad showing up at his door and the two men sharing a beer. My dad said, I wasn't so good to you, Springsteen recalled. And I said to my dad, Dad, you did the best you could. It changed our relationship immediately, Springsteen confessed. It was a lovely gift. My dad gave me many lovely gifts. He taught me how to tie a tie and throw a spiral. He taught me to think through problems and see both sides of an argument. He taught me the importance of hard work and the talent was overrated. He encouraged me to take risks but not be reckless. He taught me how to play blackjack and poker and staked me my first bet in the casino. He taught me how to read and learn and he really taught me how to play basketball. Most important, he taught me the importance of sticking things out. Finish what you start, he would always tell me. Much has been written in academia about white privilege, but the privilege that matters most in life, I've come to believe, is the father privilege. I know the advantages my father passed along to me. I would not be the man I am today, the husband or the father, without his example. And at 86, he's still teaching me. Turning boys into men is no duck walk. It's something the state can't do or a social worker. It's something mothers can't do alone, as hard as they may try, and as good and heroic as they are. Fathers are uniquely qualified to do this work, and uniquely situated. Dads play a critical and underappreciated role in their daughters' lives, too. Though few people in the media or academia are talking or writing about it, fatherlessness may be the single biggest social problem in America. Rates of sexual abuse, academic and discipline problems, incarceration rates, gang activity, and even poverty itself all increase dramatically when a dad is not present in children's lives. The hold it leaves in the hearts of sons and daughters is devastating. So to all the good dads out there, not perfect dads, just good ones, thank you. Not enough is written about you the men in this country taking on the responsibilities and pleasures of fatherhood and the disappointments too. Your steadiness and steadfastness may not make for good fiction, but it makes for good lives. Your effort to shape the next generation of husbands and fathers is the most important work in America. Thanks, Dad, and thanks to all you fathers. Our Father's Day celebration continues after these messages. American stories, and today in honor of Father's Day, we're telling the stories about fathers and the impact they have 
on their sons' and daughters' lives. In show business, parenthood often takes a back seat to fame, and families can be broken apart because of it. Money and exposure can turn parents away from their own children, and our headlines are full of these disaster stories of broken love. But every now and then, a star will buck this trend, becoming a glimpse of hope in the Hollywood world. When you talk about the most influential comedic actors of the 1980s, a handful come to mind. John Candy, Eddie Murphy, Steve Martin, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray. But you could never finish this list without mentioning Rick Moranis. For a brief time in Hollywood, Moranis played every stereotypical putz, schmuck, nerd, whatever you'd like, whichever word you'd like. He played the nerd on the big screen like no one else. He starred in movies like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Spaceballs, Little Shop of Horrors, and of course, Ghostbusters. And just when it seemed Moranis would become a permanent fixture of comedy filmmaking, he disappeared. In 1991, his wife, Ann Belsky, died after a long battle with breast cancer, leaving Rick and their two young children behind. Moranis only appeared in a few more movies, leaving the glamour of public life to raise his children as a stay-at-home single dad. He discussed this chapter of his life and how he fought through it in one of his rare interviews. Stuff happens to people every day, and they make adjustments in their lives um, for all kinds of reasons. And um, there was nothing unusual about um, what happened or, or what I did, um, I think the reason that people were intrigued by the decisions I was making and sometimes seemed to have almost admiration for it had less to do with the fact that I was doing what I was doing and more to do with what they thought I was walking away from, as if what I was walking away from had far greater value than anything else that one might. The decision in my case to become a stay-at-home dad, which people do all the time, um, I guess wouldn't have meant as much to people if I had had a very simple kind of make-a-living existence and decided, you know what, I need to spend more time at home. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this part-time and then work out of my house to do this and this and this. Nobody would pay any attention to it. But because I came from celebrity and fame and what, and what was a peak of a career, that was intriguing to people. And to me, it wasn't that. It wasn't anything to do with that. It was just work and it was time to make an adjustment. My goodness, what kind of clarity. And by the way, the kids' lives are saved because of that kind of clarity. Because fame, as we learn here on Our American Stories, and my goodness, we do our share of fame stories here, and the consequences of fame. And that's about a half, almost half of our music stories and our art stories don't end well. And we don't do anything here but pay tribute to the difficulties of fame here on this show. We don't make light of it. Moranis keeps his children's names a secret to make sure they have normal and fruitful lives. That hasn't stopped them from having some brushes with fame. My earliest memories are of being with them in public situations where people would get all excited because they were seeing a famous person, and it was me, and my kids just like were like, why are you so excited? It's just him. So they, they had a really good perspective on celebrity and fame very, very early on. And I actually tell this story all the time. I took my son, he was really young, 
to a basketball game at Madison Square Garden, and sitting in front of us was Derek Jeter, and he was sitting, actually, and this is way, way before Alex Rodriguez was going to be on the New York Yankees, he was sitting with Alex Rodriguez. I didn't know, I knew who Jeter was. I had no idea. My kid knew it all. I think he was four or something, or five. And um, they had just... He, he really followed the Yankees closely, and they had just hired Chuck Knobloch or something to play second base. And so Derek Jeter turned around, recognized me, got kind of like, oh, hi, hi. And I went, hi. And my son said, have you met Chuck Knobloch yet? And, <laughs> and Jeter looked at him like, who is this kid? But, but that was my son. He was just comfortable around anybody. And I think the reason he was was because he just didn't buy why people were getting excited around me. So fame meant nothing to the kid. But again, he had a very unusual father. Fame didn't mean much to his dad. And so that just rubbed off on the children. Moranis never thought he was special, just as a single father with a job to do. And for all the single fathers out there, he offers the following advice. I happen to have had a a really, really happy, wonderful childhood. And I think if you do, you try and recreate a lot of it. And if you don't, you try and not make those mistakes. <laughs> so I was trying to recreate a lot of um, the joy that I experienced as a kid and do it in a slightly different context because it was you know years later, 30 years later or whatever, and it was New York City as opposed to the suburbs of Toronto. Kind of decided to follow the adage of 90% or whatever of success is, is is showing up or being there. And I found that to be true, that just being there was was the best thing that I could do. That's what I experienced with my mother at home all the time. And so when my kids came home, there was music and there were lights on and there were great smells coming out of the kitchen. And it was just always a joyful place to be. And that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to create. And lucky for him and lucky for him that he had the good sense to follow that same pattern that he'd inherited. Some people squander that. They just do. Or they take it for granted. But Moranis' oddly endearing and fussy behavior made him perfect for the role of the lovable father on the big screen. And now after his children have grown up and gone off to college, he's shown he's perfectly capable of playing that role in real life too. So on this Father's Day, you single dads whether through the death of a loved one, a divorce, or something else. You play a huge role in your kids' lives, too. And do it. If you're not, start. If you are, keep up the good work. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Rick Moranis' story about fatherhood.
This is Our American Stories. We continue with our special Father's Day celebration. And if you'd like to hear more of what we do, sign up for our free newsletter. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and we'll send you our five best stories of the day. And they'll be transcribed or you can listen to them. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our free newsletter. And our next story is from a listener in Cambridge, Massachusetts on WNTN 1550 AM. His name is Robert Magradishian. And this one was produced by our new Hillsdale intern, Monty. Take it away. It's actually because of my wife's urging me to open that um, case that basically my life changed. Forever. What was in the box of Robert Megardichian's late father Abraham? A first-generation Armenian immigrant, what his box contained revealed something truly special about his character. But this father-son story doesn't begin here. You know, he was always there for us. I remember a couple of incidents. Uh, that we lived on the second floor, and um, the, those were the days before, you know, uh, the, the balusters in porches had to be, you know, like so many inches apart. Uh, somehow I squeezed through and I fell off the second floor, and uh, thankfully I was caught by the lilac bush that was uh, right underneath that porch. So I fell from the second floor to the ground uh, and fell into a lilac bush. My father retrieved me. On another occasion, my my father um, uh, kind of retrieved me after I ran down the driveway and into the street and got hit by a car and uh, broke my leg. And there are photographs of me, you know, all bruised up, but I, I remember distinctly his getting me from that situation and dragging me, you know, carrying me up the driveway, uh, you know, where they tended to me. But Abraham Megardichian was just as good of an artist as he was a father. His art is very special, but his art is nothing but a vehicle for me to um, expound upon how caring a guy this was. Abraham Megardichian created art during his free time as a machinist in the Boston area. But for Abraham, it was much more than just a fun pastime. The way this started was, uh, apparently there was a box into which they put scrap metal, and people could access that box um, and do things. You know, so during their lunch break, they would make objects, and he started out making objects that were primarily utilitarian. So he would make a thing like a, a, a replacement handle, uh, or a vase, or an ashtray, uh, or you know, a flower holder, uh, something like that, relatively simple. Easy for me to say, I'm not a machinist, but he would do this during his lunch break. Um, and then he wanted to start exploring making more complicated and, and artistic things. And what is so precious about all of this is that it's going on for years, actually till he died, um, and all of these objects are coming home as gifts for family. Abraham Megardichin's art was rooted in love for seeing his friends and family smile. And during his life, he received an appreciative audience for it as well. When he was alive, uh, he had an opportunity to uh, exhibit his art, um, I think three times, uh, once at a local library, uh, once at another local library, 
Um, and the third time was in our own church hall. These pieces were out there, and he was just, there's a photograph or, or two of him, and he was just beaming uh, that people were looking at his uh, metal artwork. One of his favorite pieces was the slice of Swiss cheese with a tiny little mouse. The mouse is about as big as your thumb. And there was a piece of Swiss cheese made out of solid copper that um, uh, accompanied it. And when this was exhibited during his life, the kids liked it. And my father said, and I remember this, he said, as long as the kids are happy, I'm happy. But Abraham Megerdichin's art went far beyond just Swiss cheese. One of the gifts he made was a toothpick set holder. So it was these toothpicks that were actually swords. And he made 12 swords. He made this holder that held all 12 swords. And every one of the hilts, the handles of these swords, was different. And the reason for that, he made everyone unique uh, so that as he, I remember him saying this, so that when they uh, stabbed the cheese, they'd know whose sword was whose. Abraham Megerdichin continued working on his art until his sudden passing at 59. And it would take Robert over 30 years to reopen what his father's death had closed. When he died, my mother just couldn't bear to look at all these gifts. And we kind of assembled everybody's gifts and we put them into the very box that he himself had made. He made a wooden box, um, I hate to use the term, but it was kind of like a casket, had all metal uh, hardware, and um, we put it in there and locked it up. He had made um, this box to store uh, those things or other things, and he had even, this is kind of the part that I like about the story, he had even uh, made a uh, little label that he put on the on the lock that said Imshinaz Panetis, which is Armenian for the things I've made. And that was kind of it. And it sat like that for years. Uh, and it wasn't until about five years ago, almost five years ago, that my wife said to me, you know, what's in the box? Uh, and when, when I opened the box, we took all these things out one by one, and that's when we said, well, what do we do now? And uh, this whole ball started with getting these pieces, you know, out there in the public. So Robert traveled from museum to museum around New England, attempting to sell curators on his father's art. Soon, 24 pieces would be permanent installations in the subject of a Boston Globe article. Abraham Megerdichin was finally getting the recognition his son thought he deserved as an artist. But Abraham would not be the only Megardichian artist. Robert, too, would go on to pick up his own art, an art that led him to become dubbed the Baseball Glove Whisperer. It was about six or seven years ago, I, I, I was at just another one of my son's baseball games. I went to this one particular game, and, and a kid came in from the field. He was a little upset um, about a botched play, and he threw his glove on the ground. And I said afterwards to my son, you know, that's not a good thing for the glove. And he, and he so, yeah, so what? So what, Dad? Who cares? And I said, well, you know, that's, you know, the glove is going to take a beating like that. And somebody's got to fix the glove. And I said, you know, and he said, 
what do you mean fix the glove? No one's going to fix the glove. They'll just go and buy a new glove. I said, why would somebody buy a new glove if you can just fix it? So Robert set out how to learn to fix baseball gloves and managed to master his own art just as his late father had done. And coming back to my father, one of the terms that's been used about him was that he was a tinkerer. Well, I guess I'm a tinkerer too. So I, um, I tinkered around and I, I dug out whatever gloves, the old ancient gloves that we had in the house. And I said, uh, you know, I, I want to fix this glove. So, you know, how, how would I do it? So my son showed me and then I tinkered around and taught myself and taught myself and taught myself. And finally, you know, you know, I put the word out, you know, if anybody needs a glove fix, I'll fix it. When I give somebody a glove back, a glove that came to me completely beat up, missing laces with a hole that the ball would pass through, and I give it back to them, and I say, your glove is now at a point where you almost have to recon- uh, re-break it in, they, they can't believe it. And um, it gives me tremendous satisfaction that somebody who had this attachment to this baseball glove from another era now gets it back and it's ready for a new life and maybe you know the little grandson gets to use it so that's tremendously satisfying to me and uh, I'm very happy that you know this it's something else that I have going on the more gloves I do and the older gloves they that show up and and seeing how people feel about them when they get it back is starting to resonate with me that, you know, maybe there's a little bit of my father in this. Uh, maybe I'm more like him than I thought. Uh, maybe this is the kind of thing that if he were alive, he'd be saying, oh, this is the best thing ever. Life is taking on a whole new meaning for me. It's, uh, it's, uh, the, as far as my father's collection, it's not just about the collection. The collection's pretty cool. But the guy's cooler. And the baseball gloves, yeah, it's a nice glove, but the kid's expression when he gets it is better. Great job on that piece, Monty. And Monty's one of our Hillsdale interns. Robert Magardishian's story, his father Abraham's story, here on Our American Stories. American stories and Father's Day is coming upon us and we have a special show for you and we had a special one for Mother's Day as well a full two-hour show and it was terrific and today we're hearing from all kinds of people but some right here on the staff and today Faith brings us something personal a letter to her father as we were driving home I sat in the car in the passenger seat wringing my hands, not knowing how to bring up a difficult conversation I knew I needed to have with you, something I knew I needed to share, something that I had done that I wasn't very proud of. I didn't want you to be disappointed in me or think less 
or perhaps even love me less. But as I fumbled the words out of my mouth and tried to hold back tears, you looked at me and you said, Faith, you know that no matter what, I'm always going to love you, right? That as God wills, that you were going to love me no matter what I did, no matter the situation I was in. You told me that if one day I came home pregnant, that you would help me work through it. That if I needed help, you would be there for me. And that you wouldn't stop loving me. Not always perfectly, of course. But that was probably one of the sweetest moments we've had. If I'm being honest, we have not always seen eye to eye on things. But there is one thing that I have never doubted. Is that you would absolutely do anything for me and my brothers and sisters if you had to. If you had no job, I know you'd dig ditches. If we had no food, I know you'd give me yours. And I know that you'd lay down your life for our family. You're the hardest worker I know. Your work ethic is incomparable to most people. You work hard, then you come home and you spend time with the family, then you go to church. And I've never seen anyone work as hard as you. I'm thankful that you work hard and you play hard. Kickball at the park. Baseball, setting up soccer games with us and our friends, going on runs together and turning it into a race at the end. I know that we've had our ups and downs. We are, we are very different people, but perhaps it's because we are more similar than I would like to realize at times. Dad, the times that you've definitely affected me the most are actually the times when you failed. That might come as a shock, but... It's not just when you failed, but when you've acknowledged your failure. When you've come to me and asked for my forgiveness, for something you've said, for something you've done. When you've admitted to wrong. I know that it's hard for people in general, and especially for a father who's supposed to be leading a family. But those have been the times. It's grown my respect for you, your humility and leadership. When you've acknowledged your wrongs instead of just moving past it, it sets a kind of example that every leader should be. When you come to me and telling that you shouldn't have said what you said, and that you're sorry, that you still love me, and that you hope I can forgive you. Dad, that's what I'm most proud to be your daughter. And perhaps it's because I'm emotional and probably your most emotional kid, but... When you acknowledge hurts and pains, when you've listened to me and you've been there for me, it's meant the world. Not many girls in this world have dads who love and care for them as much as you do. Even in the times where I've been the most difficult. When I was struggling with my eating disorder and my depression in high school, you were at the meetings with the counselors trying to get me back up on my feet. You were worried sick, wishing that you could take it away. Dad, I'm sorry for how I've hurt you. Thank you for loving me. For helping me out financially when I need it. For teaching me what it means to grow up to be a godly woman, even though you're a man. I should probably call you more than I do. But Dad, I do consider you my friend. I enjoy coming home and going on runs with you. And although I beat you when we race now, it's still fun to have a competition. The work ethic that you taught me probably is what got me through college. There were many times where you made me laugh when I was crying. 
You were always ready to give a hug when I needed one. Something that has really amazed me is how much other people respect you. How much that speaks of your character. When I went to your work and everyone around me knew I was your daughter, they would just praise you. And I know, of course, boss's daughter better make a good impression. But at the same time, they were, they were genuine. Because you're a man of integrity. Dad, I know I'd like to think that I'm all grown up at times with my big girl job. But I know you're always going to see me as just your little girl. And probably in high school, that would have bothered me. But now, I don't see it as such a bad thing. Daddy's girl can often sound like a spoiled, rotten princess. And I know that I'm not a little girl anymore. But the fact that I get to call you daddy and be your girl, I'm proud. I remember when I had my first broken heart. Took me way too long to get over it. I was sharing with you and telling you what happened or things that I remembered, pains that come back, and you would just listen. And all the hurtful things that had happened, you would counteract with compliments or with assurance and encouragement. Faith, that guy was just an idiot. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> I kind of knew that by now. But I remember one time when you were really disappointed in me. And you looked at me and you said, Faith, as much as I want, and as much as I would like, I can't protect you from everything. Because I can't protect you from your own actions. And you didn't say it angrily, or even in a stern voice. But that's when I knew that I broke your heart. But even in that moment, I didn't doubt for a second that you still loved me. In fact, it was in that moment where I believed it the most. Because you knew if you could, you would. I remember looking you in the eyes when we were arguing once, and you saying, don't you understand how much I love you? And that's how you've so amazingly displayed the love of our Heavenly Father. That even in the times where I've been rebellious or hurtful or even hateful, or I've disappointed or wounded you and Mom, you've loved me unconditionally as best you could. Your love for me has given me a foretaste of what God's love is for all of his children. That's been one of the best gifts you've given to me. Well, I wish I could give you a hug on this Father's Day. I hope that you know how much I love you, appreciate you, respect you, miss you, how much I want to make you proud. I know you haven't always been the perfect dad, but I know you sure try to be the best that you could be. And that's pretty darn great. I love you, Dad. And that's just beautiful faith. And any father wants to hear those words. And if you aren't or haven't, maybe you haven't been the father you need to be. And listening, big part of it, guys. Learn to do it and to love unconditionally. Hardest part of all, you got to do it. And you just heard why. And again, thank you, Faith. I know it wasn't an easy thing to do, but thanks for doing it. And here on Father's Day, I know there's some tears and eyes, and even some people here I'm not used to seeing tears in the eyes of on this show. So thanks for that, Faith. And I can't protect you from everything. I can't protect you from your own actions. 
I'm going to keep that in my little arsenal for my, my little girl, my little darling. This is Our American Stories. It's Father's Day, and we're going to hear from every kind of father here, because some are married, some are single, some have lost a bride, some have suffered divorce, some father out of wedlock. Fathers matter. My goodness, we just heard it. Fathers matter. Faith's story, her father's story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for a, well, this is a tougher side of Father's Day, and a lot of kids just don't have dads, and this particular piece, well, it was done as a sort of a slam poetry performance by an unknown person that wasn't named on YouTube, this young lady, but she was terrific, and, and this was really, well, this had a lot of power. Let's take a listen. When's the last time you heard a poem about an absent father? And if you can recall the answer to that question easily, well, that's the problem. That's why many of us ran into the warm arms of poetry. Why many of us found life within the boundaries of a page, of a space, of a blank array to create the man we wanted to know. Our storytelling started while we were old, but young in flesh. Young at heart, curious about why we were left. They could have been supermans or presidents, artists or veterans, anything to distract us from what the ugly truth could be that maybe he just didn't want me. So we wrote and we wrote until lies became truths and planks of wood became boats, became the tool that kept us afloat to survive within this beautiful lie to protect us from the storms that our mothers hated to hide, pulling back the wool over our eyes, trying to show us that this is simply life. And this is not how you are defined. Instead, we took that advice and created something from nothing. Because a child with no father is nothing but a refugee searching for a place to call home. And the moment that your father is absent is the moment that you have no place to belong. We have no place to belong. We are walking halves with missing cultures. We are thirsty vultures trying to finish the other side without peeking before it's finished, though. And by the time we have grown into adults, we look like Picassos. Two faces with different perspectives. The face forward, confident detective of identity. The other looking to the side, trying to figure out why me? The color choice especially. Because we have been made up of colored oil that hasn't reached its full term. Term oil that churns and churns until gray is a palette that breathes. Because although we are full with so much vibrancy, it's really the gray that matters underneath. Because that gray resembles uncertainty and that goes back to he, to him, to the man we call father. And now let's take a listen to a piece we came across a year or two ago. 
by Gary Ginsburg of New York City. He wrote it about his dad, Irwin, and the piece was called Me, My Dad, and American Pharaoh. And for those of you who aren't horse racing fans, American Pharaoh won the Triple Crown in 2015. I'm personally a huge horse racing fan. I take my girl to Santa Anita for the opening meet every time I get a chance. Let's take a listen to Gary's Father's Day tribute to his dad, Irwin. And they're into the stretch, and American Pharaoh makes his run for glory as they come into the final furlong. Frosted is second with one eighth of a mile to go. American Pharaoh's got a two lane lead. Frosted is all out at the 16th pole, and here it is. The 37 year wait is over. American Pharaoh is finally the one. American Pharaoh has won the triple crown. He did it. American Pharaoh has ended the 37 year drought to a deafening roar from the fans here at Belmont Park. When American Pharaoh crossed the finish line in Belmont Stakes on June 6, 2015, becoming the first Triple Crown winner in 37 years, I cried. After talking with friends who also watched the race, most of us men in our 50s and 60s, I discovered I was not alone. Many of us were overcome by emotion and, as it turns out, mostly for the same reason. We were thinking about our dads. For a generation of American men born during the Great Depression, racing was much more than a five-week diversion from the first Saturday in May to the first Saturday in June. It was an obsession. And the obsession was shared with us, their children, so that in many cases, horse racing came to define the relationship we had with our fathers and the little free time they had to share with us. For me and for so many of my friends Saturday, the one person with whom we all wanted to share this historic moment was no longer by our side. The joy and thrill of the race was tempered by a profound sadness. My dad, Erwin Ginsberg, has had four great passions in life. The law, tennis, his family, and thoroughbred racing, though not necessarily in that order. He developed his fascination with horses as a kid in Buffalo, during what was arguably the sport's heyday. Following the exploits of horses like War Admiral and Citation. Between the ages of 7 and 18, he had already witnessed an astonishing five Triple Crown winners, and he was hooked. He wanted to make sure I got hooked too. It's a beautiful Sunday, the one day of the week he didn't go into his law office, was race day. We'd pile into our Chrysler New Yorker and head from our home in Buffalo to the Fort Erie racetrack in Ontario. Once there, Dad would walk me through the intricacies of the racing form, speed ratings, past performances, class levels, before placing a series of exotic bets on the Phillies and mares traveling the hard-bitten southern Ontario race circuit. When he lost, which was more times than not, he'd angrily crumple the betting slips, ending up with a small mountain under his seat by the end of the day. 
That horse, named Secretariat, is the reason why one of the greatest crowds in horse racing history has turned out here at Belmont Park in New York to see a picture. But we were in front of our Zenith TV for the I'm best race of all, the, the 1973 Belmont Stakes. Secretariat had already run the fastest Kentucky Derby and Preakness in history and came to the race of champions as the prohibitive favorite. For my dad, it represented the best chance to end a 25-year Triple Crown drought. My 11-year-old self sensed the moment's historic significance, so I brought my tape recorder. And you will see, and Secretariat being led, he is, number is two, but he goes into the number one post. Listening to that cassette today, I can hear the tension in my father's voice as the horses make their way to the starting gate. He yells at me to move away from the screen, though the race is still a minute from post. We're ready to go for this tremendous Belmont Then the race starts, and it quickly becomes a two-horse contest, with Secretariat pulling away after the half-mile pole. We're quiet at first, but the silence breaks when I shout, he's going to win. My father shushes me, and we both go quiet again until Secretariat rounds the final turn. Secretariat is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. Secretariat by 12. Secretariat by 14 lengths on the turn. Sam is dropping back. My father starts repeating, oh my God, oh my God. But Secretariat is all alone. He's out there almost a sixteenth of a mile away from the rest of the horses. While well, I'm unable to control my prepubescent excitement, I begin screaming again at the screen. Secretariat has opened a 22-length lead. He is going to be the triple crown winner. Here comes Secretariat to the wire. An unbelievable, an amazing performance. He hits the finish 25 lengths in front. In the years that followed, we watched Seattle Slough and Affirm win their triple crowns and continued our Sunday traditions at the track, eventually with me adding to the mountain under our seats thanks to my paper route earnings. Then I left Buffalo for college, law school, and life in New York, and another triple crown drought set in. A decade ago, my father found out he had Alzheimer's. His mom, dad, and brother had all had the disease. He had feared it his entire adult life, and now he was to suffer the same fate. He was forced into a retirement he never wanted. But his love of horses endured. Three summers running, I took him to the Saratoga race course until the betting became too complicated for him. But the Belmonts still held a special place. Even as his brilliant mind declined, twice he managed to travel by himself from Buffalo to New York with hopes of witnessing one more triple crown alongside his son. And twice we were denied. Standing side by side, watching first Smarty Jones and then Big Brown lose in heartbreaking fashion, were among the happiest moments of my dad's retirement and of my adult life. Victor, you just won the Belmont Stakes and with it, ended the 37-year drought and got your first Triple Crown finally. Just after the Belmont this year, my face still flushed from crying, I called my mom in Buffalo to see if dad had watched. No, they hadn't watched the race. He wouldn't know a horse from a rabbit, she said. Instead, they were sitting at the table having dinner. My father oblivious that his 37-year wait for another Triple Crown winner was over. Well, you might not be able to feel how fast he's going, but I can feel how happy you are. Let's go to Kenny Rice. I started to cry all over again. Mm -hmm.
And thank you so much for that, Gary. What a story. And for all the fathers who have these rituals of bonding with your kids, fishing, horse racing, card playing, whatever it is, boy, when you spend the time with your kid, you can hear the voice of those children. And when you don't, when you're not present, my goodness, that young girl's voice, you could hear the pain. Celebrating Father's Day here on Our American Stories.